and welcome back to the One Foot Down podcast. I am Eric Murtaugh, Editor-in-Chief at OneFootDown.com. This is our 51st podcast. We haven't done one in quite a while. It's been almost a month. We basically skipped over uh, most of spring football. Um, during our last podcast, the basketball team was going through their deep run and then CWA tournament ultimately falling in the Elite Eight to Kentucky. Since then, most of the spring practices have uh, have all gone off. We had the blue gold game. We're going to talk about that here shortly. Uh, with me today on the podcast is Phil. You know him on the site as Young Curmudgeon. Phil, how you doing? I'm doing good, Eric. How you doing? I'm um, doing all right. Still kind of waiting for spring to uh, come here in Western New York. Yeah, well, that's one thing about being in the Caribbean. It's uh, summer all the time, so we don't got to worry about any of that stuff. Yeah, not much laundry for you down there, is there? Uh. Well, I guess I don't know how to answer that question, frankly. So uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that to the side. All right, we have some football to talk to. Like I said, <clears throat> we haven't done a podcast in about a month. Uh, it's probably one of the most uneventful spring practices I've ever been around. I've been doing this kind of seriously for six or seven years. Uh, not a whole lot to talk about. Um, the blue goal game was last weekend and uh just wanted to get your initial takeaway um from from what you know you could out of that game i know it was kind of difficult when i was sitting down it was about the middle of third quarter i was like i'll get the uh the quick post up here kind of five takeaways and it was really hard to write i wanted to talk about the tight ends and uh then at the end of the game wisher caught that touchdown pass so i was like i'm not going to talk about that so uh what's your initial takeaway from the blue gold game this year uh, well, I think my initial takeaway was that we didn't learn much about our defense. We just straight up didn't. Um, you know, we saw I saw some good things on the linebackers, you know, but I, I don't think we learned much about anything else in terms of, oh, have our safeties communicating or is our D-line all of a sudden going to develop a pass rush or anything of that nature. So I think from that point of view, we didn't really learn much there. Um, and I guess if we talk about the quarterback debate, I mean, it's still – it's still a debate. I mean, I'm, I've am i pitched my tent in the Everett Golson camp, and I will sit there and defend said camp uh, probably in, you know until doomsday. But I think from the point of view of, of you know fans and everybody else, that this is something that is going to – and for the coaching staff, I suppose, as well, uh, this is something that is going to continue well into the summer and the fall leading up right to Texas. So I don't think a lot is settled yet. And I think that's, to be honest, that's the biggest takeaway I had is that nothing is really settled. Yeah, I would agree on the defense. Uh, Typically the spring games aren't even really tailored to them at all. I don't think I even really talked about the defense in my recap. Uh, You know, I was looking at the stats here before we jumped on and they actually had 14 tackles for loss. I I was kind of surprised that that number was that high. I, I did think the pressure was pretty – they did pretty well putting pressure on the uh, the quarterbacks, I thought, after that first quarter. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about the quarterback situation. I know everyone wants to talk about it. I'm kind of in the same camp as you. I've been kind of pro Golson um, this entire time. I, I don't know. I think there's kind of lots of uh, strange things going on with, with how people are kind of perceiving the whole competition, you know, to me at least, and you know, people say, oh, you're biased, but it seemed like Brian Kelly pretty much did all he could to kind of tell everyone, uh, you know, Colson's going to be the starter. 
um, you know, talking about his best spring ever. Uh, you know, he was starting most of the practices at the view that the media was able to view. He starts the blue gold game. Uh, you know, everyone was saying, you know, he looked great during practices and, um, you know, it's just it's just really difficult to, to hear and see all this stuff and say, well, how is this guy not going to be playing uh, when the ball snapped against Texas, and how is he not going to have a good season? What are some of your thoughts on kind of how people are perceiving that quarterback battle? Um, well, one thing I will say is that I've seen – in the arguments that I've seen, particularly for Morlik Zaire to be the guy to start and basically take over this job and not just share time but be the starter, I don't know. I just find that people are really tying themselves in knots to make that argument. You know, they're trying to be, you know, rational on one side. Oh, you know, he has that it factor. He can run the ball. He's got a cannon for an arm. But at the same time, we've seen him play in three games. You know, and and, and it seems like people – Every time they say, oh, he's the clear favorite, and they make that claim, then they have to sort of hedge their bets and say, well, you know, we've only seen him in three games. And for me, when I was watching the spring game, I was looking for Malik Zaire to sit in the pocket and make a progression. And I didn't see that. Frankly, I didn't see it. Maybe maybe I missed it. But what I saw was that he's the kind of guy, he's one read, and then he's running, you know? And, and that's and that's fine for a guy who's essentially a sophomore um, at the position, you know. But again, he's a one read and run type of guy. If his re- first read's not there, yeah, he threw that big bomb to Fuller, and yeah, he threw some lasers down the seam and in slants and whatever. But it's always his. It seems like it's his first read. So what I'm concerned about is that if you're going to name this guy your primary starter, he better show you that he can go to a second, third, or even dump it off to a running back sort of situation because if you get a defense a defense that is good at running contain so is tailored to his you know tailored to go against his strengths that can run good contain he's going to be forced to pick apart a defense with his arm and frankly from what i've seen i'm not sure if his skill set and his knowledge of the offense is to the point where he can go to his second or third read and make the defense pay for containing him in the backfield and and that's probably in terms of Malik Zaire where where I have a sort of a little skepticism in terms of the hype. Yeah, the one thing that bothers me, I think, is you know people will say, well, Malik Zaire is a gamer. And two things on that. The first is I'm not sure how easy of a decision it could be for Brian Kelly to say, well, you know, the offensive line, the whole offense, the whole team is watching Golson outperform him in practice, and I don't understand why people are kind of just dismissing that like Brian Kelly's just supposed to like look into a crystal ball and you know pull all the chips into the into the middle of the table on Zier and say well he's going to step up in the games and uh you know everyone's going to be happy with that I, I don't know how people could see something like that unfold and not wonder if the if the offense and the team as a whole would kind of question that decision the other side of that coin is people say well Zaire has looked good to great in his, you know, one and a half to two games that he's played in his career. And that, you know, that's enough of a sample size to guarantee that he's going to be, you know, this great quarterback uh, starting this fall. But if you go back and look at Everett Golson's career, I mean, he has a a nice start against Navy, wasn't asked to do a whole lot in that blowout victory. The second game against Purdue – 
you know, a lot of people remember that as a frustrating game. I was there. It was a very frustrating game, but he throws for the most yards ever by a, a Notre Dame quarterback making his first start uh, inside Notre Dame Stadium. 289 yards. He was 21 of 31. He made a lot of good plays in that game. He was under duress a whole lot during that game. He scored a rushing touchdown. Now he did fumble late, which almost blew the game, and Reese had to come in and, and lead that uh, game-winning field goal drive. But, you know, the point remains – you know, a couple games into Golson's career, he was looking amazing too. Uh, and you could even go, you know, that entire season. I mean, he had some ups and downs, but, you know, his first 15, 16 starts, you know, you have a huge sample size. And uh, I just, I don't know, it's really hard for me to look at two games and just say, well, that's enough. Because, you know, Golson had two games and he looked pretty great after two games. And, you know, he's had his own problems. But here we are with Golson still outplaying him in practice. Yeah, and, and I think sort of to go off what you're saying is that when people say that Malik, this is a good enough sample size, is they're they're not saying it explicitly, but they're essentially making the claim that they're going to assume he's not going to have the growing pains that you would expect from a sophomore quarterback, which which is patently ridiculous because we've you know we've seen it in Everett Golson. Everett Golson had a great freshman career, you know, twelve and zero. There's nothing wrong, you know, that you can't have much of a better start as a freshman. Um, and for me, you know, you talk about the Purdue game, but I always look at the Oklahoma game. You know, it, the Oklahoma game was a couple of things. One, you're playing a good team at their place on the road. And, and importantly, you saw him not just throw the ball a lot. You know, he had the bomb to Chris Brown and, you know, throwing the ball well, but he ran the ball a lot, effectively ran the ball a lot in that game. And that's what, you know, sort of always confused me about the last season that we had, where he had all these fumbles is that we didn't really see that a lot in his first year. So, you know, you figured there was some sort of mental thing, you know, of having to put the entire team on his back, both offense and defense last, last year, that sort of messed with his head and messed with his mechanics a little bit. And even if you go to the national championship game, even though we were getting, you know, smacked up and down the field, he was still going out there playing. And then, played a you know a decent game all things considered um you know so basically i i just don't understand this argument that we're, we're assuming that because malik has had three decent games and two of them were actual real games and one of them was a like scrimmage you know and then one and then one of those games he only played a half and then the game that he did play more than a half and he split time and also there was they were game planned against him so you know all these sort of things it's too much against him to start. It's you know what I'm saying. Like I don't understand where people are saying that this is a adequate sample size to say that he is the guy, and or or more importantly to say that Golson isn't a gamer. I mean, look at I mean Golson threw a pick with four minutes left in the pick game and still, and you know down twenty points in the fourth quarter in that game and you know at that point still throws a pick, takes you back and, and beats you in overtime. You know. In four minutes, you know, got freshman quarterback shouldn't throw a pick like that and then come back and, and, you know, do well. He's just as much as a gamer as anybody else is. So I don't know that it's just, I, it's that stone. It's that same sort of philosophy that the, you know, the second string quarterback is always the most popular guy, you know? So. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think, I don't know. I, I, I like to play kind of pop psychologist with our fan base. And I think there's probably four things that, are really driving the discussions uh, in the background in, in regards to people favoring Zaire over Golson. 
Um, the first one I think is just turnovers. Um, you know, I, it's hard to defend Golson on, on some of those. I mean, I tend to agree. I think his fumbling is, is kind of half freak uh, accidents and half he's just not, you know, a great – if he was a running back, he's just not someone who protects the ball well enough. And, uh, you know, if I had to put money on it, I would say he's probably going to lose three or four fumbles uh, if he starts the entire season. Um, the question is if you can overcome those or not, you know, three or four fumbles about a quarterback. I don't know. I don't know what the average is, but that's not like crazy. This past year he had like six or seven and that's getting out of hand. The second I think was his suspension. Um, I think that soured him. Um, uh, for a lot of fans, I think that was kind of not necessarily the end, but they would, it would be really hard for him to, to win to hit their trust back. The third is, uh, the leadership angle, which I think is just kind of ridiculous, you know, he has his own style of leadership. Zaire's got his own style. Um, you know, I was watching part of the blue gold game and there was a throw or Notre Dame got a first down and Golson was on the field. And you could see Zaire in the camera and it looked like he was kind of pissed off that he wasn't going to be able to get out there on the field. And, you know, that's the other side of the coin. They don't think people really realize with a fiery guy like that is, you know, especially with this quarterback competition, this quarterback controversy is that you can have, some real problems develop, you know, you really need guys who are patient and are willing to put the team first. And I'm not saying that there won't be doing those things, but when a guy's that fiery and that, you know, just jacked up all the time, there's going to be some drawbacks, especially once he comes in and starts playing and makes some mistakes. So I think that's the third thing people are looking at Zaire and like, Oh my God, he's a better leader and they want to uh, ride that. So, and I think the fourth thing is people look at Zaire and they say, well, you know, with Zaire, we're going to run the ball you know, X percentage more of the time. And that's just going to be better overall for the offense. So I think those three, those four things, the turnovers, the suspension, the leadership and running the ball more. I think that's pretty much why almost everybody who is favoring Zaire is favoring Zaire. What do you think? Uh, Yeah. I I mean, I agree with all four of those, especially when it comes to the turnovers. um, The one that always sticks out in my head is the one in the Arizona state game late in the game. We had, already you know come back we were right there driving and Golson delivers a beautiful I think it was an out route or something to Corey Robinson hits him square in the chest bounces off into the defender's arms take it back for six and I'm like if there was not one play that sort of defined this season that was it uh because in my mind I, I saw a lot of times you know, things that went through receivers' hands, things that bounced off receivers' hands, stuff that wasn't necessarily Golson's fault that, you know, all got pinned on him in the end. Um, and I don't know, like, and that's what it comes down to is, you know, I he had the turnovers, and we look at just the raw data, and it's a lot of turnovers. If you go game by game, you know, play by play, a lot of those turnovers aren't his fault. And I'm actually we're going to address that when we talk about, you know, position groups later with wide receivers, you know, sort of that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, in terms of the fiery leadership of Zaire and all so I agree with you 100%. You know, it's great for a guy to be really rah-rah. Um, and we assume that that's the same thing as leadership. You know, leaders are guys who lead people through things and, you know, lead people, lead them past, past adversity and they're tested in that and they grow in that. Um, and until Zaire has proven that he can push an offense or a team past adversity, I'm not going to label him, you know, the next great leader. You know, I, I just, 
I'm not willing to do that. I mean, I'm not. I'm saying there's nothing wrong with him right now. I'm, I'm saying I don't. There's not something I don't like about him, but I'm not willing to say he's some phenomenal leader before he's actually, you know, had a lead. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is is this point about that we run the ball more as Zaire, which is true. But my question is, first of all, again, if you go back to like the LSU game, we had our best offensive line play of the entire season in that game. Everett Golson did not have the benefit of that throughout the entire season. The other thing there is that if we run the ball more with Everett Golson at quarterback, do we see a much more composed Everett Golson who doesn't literally have to run the entire offense himself and do it all himself? I mean, yes, would I like us to run the ball more? Of course I would. I want to see Terry and Folston, you know, trucking guys. I want to see Greg Bryant getting his touches. I want to see, you know, dynamic plays out of CJ Prosize. Um, and that can all happen with Everett Golson under center. So my, that's the thing I don't get. Like, yes, Zaire is a better runner. Great. We also have three running backs that have the potential to be great and a guy that can dissect a defense with his arm and can run for a couple yards too. I mean, that that's what I'm seeing in Everett Golson, and I think it's a false argument because that's more of a play-calling problem. That's not the problem with the player. It's a problem with how you see the coach coaching the game. And so none of like people are using these arguments as a poor reflection on Golson. And if you really sit there and dissect the arguments, they're not really uh, reflections on him at all. I mean, some of the turnovers, yeah, but outside of that, you know, not so much. Yeah, the turnovers. I think you know, you know, don't don't lose a fumble on a snap. Um, you know, there's a couple. You know, just just don't fumble the ball two or three more times and. You know, next year you're not going to have hopefully three pick sixes or whatever they were. A couple of those weren't his fault. Um, you know, three less fumbles and three or four less turnovers. I mean, you can live with that. I mean, Heisman winners can have eight, nine, ten turnovers in a season. That's not that big of a deal. The, the thing with running the ball is, and I'm going to have an article uh, not not up this week, but next week, kind of talking about what could go wrong with the offense, and you know. I too would like to see us run the ball a little bit more, but I think this notion that we can just put Zaire in and, you know, run the ball 65, 68% of the time. And that's just going to be, you know, that's the best thing for this offense right now and the offensive line, you know, being pretty strong up front, but you know, there's going to be times when you need to throw the ball. That's just the way it is. You know, just looking at Ohio state, I mean, Barrett and Jones last year combined, for 42 touchdown passes. They were both over nine yards of attempt, um, both over 60% passing. I mean, it's really, really hard to have a good offense when all you can do is run the ball. Now, yeah, Zaire might be able to throw an occasional good deep ball and do some good things, but uh, gosh, I don't know if you can just trust him to, to be able to uh, consistently pass the ball, especially when you have Golson on the, uh, on the bench. That's just a really tough call, and uh, like I said, practice is important. And uh, if he's if Zaire's not beating him out in practice, then I don't know how you can um, make that decision to uh, have him usurp Golson. And the thing is, you know, people are like, "Oh, he's going to beat him out in August camp." Well, you know, they they pretty much practice for two weeks, and then the second two weeks they're just prepping for Texas for that season opener. So it's not that long. I mean, he had four weeks here in the spring; it didn't happen. I don't know how much two more weeks is going to help. So uh, I, I still think this is Golson by pretty, pretty easy margin. 
if if I had one knock on Golson's game, the one thing I would say is that he needs to decide if he's going to slide when he's in the open field. Because uh, I, I and that's I feel like watching film, he has a tendency when he is in the open field and he sees a guy coming or if he's getting tripped up from behind, he tends to dive forward with the ball. And that's, I feel when the ball with him is most vulnerable is he keeps the ball kind of up by his neck, almost like he's reaching across the goal line, except that he's on the 35 at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, there's no reason to be doing that Um, because I like quite frankly, and that's one of the things I did take away from the blue goal game was that when he runs into contact, the ball was tucked, you know, it was secure and he looked good you know, running into contact. It's only when he starts getting into sort of an open area in the field where he's, you know, sort of giving himself up or if he's getting crip from the behind that he reaches with the ball a little bit and he almost breaks his fall with the ball. And I think with that is he needs to decide, yes, if you're, if you're Malik Zaire, you're 235 pounds or whatever, you know, hit the truck stick, knock the guy over. Let's go. That's great. But when you're 200 pounds and, you know, and if, and if you're giving yourself up already by diving, just slide. You know, I know we don't want to hear that from a, a quote-unquote dual threat running quarterback that he's going to slide. But if you've picked up your, you know, 10, you know, 8, 10 yards and, you know, you're going to get hit and you have ball security issues, just slide. I mean, it seems to me because you're giving yourself up as it is with this little dive thing and you're letting the ball, you know, bounce off the turf and you're putting yourself at risk for a turnover. And, and I think that that's something from a fundamentals and from a mechanics standpoint that, you know, might need to be addressed in, you know, the OTAs in the summer or something. And hopefully something um, that our new uh, OC can, uh, can uh, look at and deal with. Yeah. He must not have played baseball or something growing up. Yeah. Right. Doesn't like that first slide. I think now, I think for him, it's always going to be hard because he's not tall, but um yeah, I wrote an article a while back. I think he needs to be, do better stepping up into the pocket. Kind of still drifts a lot and spins out of trouble, which can be awesome at times. You know, he had to play in that spring game where Grace came up the middle and basically just runs away from him, you know, eight yards backwards and squares up his shoulders and fires a, a beautiful pass to Coy Robinson. You know, that's kind of the great side of Golson, but uh, there's lots of times where he can step up in the pocket and be able to. Uh, make a nice easy pass. Uh, the other thing is when he runs and I, I kind of, I thought he was doing better towards the end of the season. He doesn't really run with a whole lot of, um, he doesn't run with his hair on fire. You can kind of see when Zaire comes in that Zaire is just determined to get a lot of yards with goals. And it's kind of, I think he still has that point guard mentality from basketball. When he runs, it's kind of like he makes a guy miss. And then, you know, he's moving his feet quickly, but he's not really like, hauling ass, I guess is a good way to say it. And then he kind of like sees a guy coming and he's kind of measuring him up, how he's going to juke him. And, you know, it's kind of, it's always a very like stop and start, a very like change pace kind of runner. He doesn't really just run hard like a running back would. And um, I feel like if he, when he, if he's improving on the option read, you know, he takes the ball and just run hard. And, you know, if you think you're going to get drilled, just slide feet first or just, angle yourself out of bounds and keep protection of the ball. I think if he does that, he'll be a lot improved. He's, he's athletic enough to, uh, to be a good runner. You know, I read something before we hopped on here. He's run for almost a thousand yards in two years. If you take away some of the sacks. So, you know, that's, that's not nothing right there as, 
as a runner. Yeah, I mean, and you if you go and go back and look at the highlights from that 2012 Oklahoma game, I mean, they had designed runs for him, and he was running up the middle. He was making guys miss. He was shaking guys off. You know, he didn't fumble the ball at all in that game. So running is a viable part of Everett Golson's game. Somewhere in the last two or three years, something fundamentals or mechanics-wise has not been addressed. Um, but again, I think, you know, he needs to really decide on what kind of quarterback he's going to be. Is he going to be a pocket passer, you know, that can pick up some yards with his legs when he needs to be, or is he going to be a true dual-deck quarterback? But that's going to make a decision. He's got to make a hard decision about what his strategy is then. Is it going to be get seven or eight yards and slide, or is it, you know, try and engage with, in contact, you know, but at the same time he's got to work on his ball security. So, you know, I think it's sort of him developing – an identity and a philosophy as a, as a complete quarterback, which I guess just comes with uh, maturity in, in, in a, in an offense, which you would expect for a guy who's now, you know, in only his third year of, you know, collegiate football. Yeah. And like you said, you know, people want Sayer to play so he can run the ball more, but why not just run the ball more with Golson? Yeah. Why not run the more, run the ball more with Golson or more importantly, the thing for me is that I don't understand in this day and age why people would, people are essentially when they say that are demanding we become one dimensional, you know, they're demanding that, you know, Zaire run the ball and we're going to run the ball with these three guys. And now we get an extra blocker and all this sort of stuff. But the moment you can play in a good defense, that can play a good contain and keep your quarterback bottled up in the backfield. What do you do then? You know, is, is, is Zaire going to be able, like I said, to pick a defense apart with his arm. And from what I'm seeing, he can't, he just can't do it right now. Well, in a year or so, he'll be able to do it. Hopefully, but can't do it right now. He's and that just to my mind makes him your second option. And and that's just kind of how I see it on that point. Yeah. I'm not sure people really kind of grasp that, you know, if, even if you're running the ball a lot and you do have a good, really great rush offense that there's going to be times where you're just going to get bogged down, you know, look at Auburn. I mean, is there a better just flat out great rushing team in the country? Great scheme, you know, great players. And you watch some of those, some of their games, you know, they're going three, four series. They're not doing a whole lot of, on offense. And, uh, you know, it happens to everybody if you're one dimensional. I mean, it's really hard uh, at Auburn sometimes. They didn't have good quarterback play. They're not making plays in, in the, the passing game. And it's just tough. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if, know if people really understand truly that that's, <laughs> that could be what could happen to this offense. Anyway. I mean, yeah, I mean, if Notre Dame fans need an illustration, look at LSU in the bowl game. I mean, yep. they couldn't pass for nothing. I mean, if it wasn't for Leonard Fournette being, you know, godlike at that position and breaking off some huge runs, they didn't do much in the in the you know intermediate run game. They weren't getting you know five yards of carry consistently. They had some big runs, but somehow, some way, the Notre Dame defense was able to bottle them up, and you didn't have a quarterback that could pass the ball effectively, and you know. That's what happened. It's, you know, sort of that's the example that should be right in front of everybody's noses when they start saying, well, let's just run the ball. You know, all right. <laughs> all right, let's move on. We're going to talk about, yeah. um, I don't know, I guess maybe the biggest takeaway from the spring game was that it was played in the practice facility at the bar um, just across from the Goog. Um, I guess, you know, years from now, I remember this being that one game that was played there. What did you think of the whole uh, setup they had there and the broadcast that NBC was able to do? I thought it was pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I was happy that NBC, you know, sort of being good partners, I guess, if you will, from a, from a business sense, you know, made the effort to go and be there and be a little innovative. 
Um, I don't know. I kind of, I, I guess watching on TV, I wish they had put up maybe like a screen or something behind the stands opposite the cameras. Cause I really got the sense that we were on a practice field sort of thing. I, you know, if you ever watch like, uh, like uh, a, a preseason baseball, uh, spring training, spring training baseball, uh-huh. and, you know, you, you have the big, you know, the big, the big teams, the big league teams, but they're in a stadium that holds about, you know, 6,000 people, you know, and you kind of got that sense that, wow, this is, this is really not the real deal yet. I don't know. To me, it, it, it just seemed very, uh, it just didn't seem as majestic, I guess you could say as the spring game normally is. But I mean, with that being said, I thought it was pretty cool that, you know, they got up there, they, they hung out, uh, you know, Doug Flutie and, and I don't forget who the other guy was, but they, you know, had him up in the booth and they were, uh, you know, they, I think I think it all turned out pretty well, all things considered. See, I kind of have a little bit of a different reaction. I typically don't really like the spring game being in the stadium just because there's not that many people there. And uh, it, the whole sound is off. I mean, Notre Dame's not exactly the most raucous place in the country. Everybody kind of understands that. But in the spring game, it's kind of even deader than that. And, you know, there's all those empty seats. I thought this was like kind of a cozy atmosphere in a way. I liked – also, how close the cameras were to the field, which is a bit of a different perspective. Um, I was wondering, like, man, it'd be really cool if they could do this during the season, if they could get that close. And they did a really good job of, you know, when the offense was on the field or whatever, the ball snapped. You could kind of still have the same angles. Like, you could still see uh, enough of the defense to kind of see what the defense was doing. But somehow, like, the, I don't know, the angles are kind of different. The players looked way bigger. I remember reading some stuff after – the game, everyone's like, wow, our team is so big. And I'm like, well, the, the cameras are probably like twice as close <laughs> as they usually are in the stadium. And plus, you know, just being in the stadium makes everything seem so much smaller. But I kind of liked it. I kind of, I don't know. I, for some reason, I, I almost enjoyed it more than it was in the stadium. Yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of cool when, when they mentioned, I think it was Sheldon Day's mother, you know, were basically screaming beneath the booth and you could hear every word she was saying and you could hear it over the mics too and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think it was – I agree with you. It was a it was a pretty cool atmosphere. I, I mean, I, I guess it's from the point of view that you got to figure out a way to get more people in there um, and stuff like that. But I don't know. I, I mean, I, it wasn't a big deal for me. I still enjoyed it. I still enjoyed watching the game. I was glad that NBC, you know, did what they could to make the production happen. And, you know, it, it's the spring game. You know, it's it, the spring game always seems to me something that it's, you know, it's you make whatever you want of it. You know, it's, it's yeah. you know, from a football point of view, from a, you know, just a general fan point of view that, you know, it's sort of a blank canvas and everybody walks out, you know, if there's 5,000 people sitting on the stands, you're going to get 5,000 completely different opinions of how the team performed and how everything turned out. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I can't disagree with anything that she said about it. All right. Um, now that springs over with, we're going to kind of talk about the roster a little bit. Um, first, we're going to talk about your top three groups, your positional groups, where then we're going to talk about the bottom three groups. Um, if you want to kind of work backwards within those tiers, we'll go with the, your your top three groups. If you want to give me your third um, top group, um, and then I'll I'll give you mine once you kind of talk about who yours are and why. Sure. Um, well, not to uh, bother too many people, but I have actually the wide receivers as my third best group. Okay. Um, 
I know a lot of people probably would expect them to be a little bit higher, but um, I'm looking at him from the point of view that, okay, Will Fuller is a speed demon. He's dynamic. He drops the ball a lot. Corey yeah. Robinson, athletic, long, gets some decent separation, can get up over a DB, drops the ball a lot. You know, and then there's a whole bunch of other names. Maybe Chris Brown. Chris Brown is starting to emerge as a good guy, as a really uh, decent threat and a really good option. But outside of that, you know, yeah, we have really athletic guys in Torrey Hunter, Justin Brent, Corey Holmes, you know, CJ Prosize, you know, wherever he's lining up on the field. But at the end of the day, they're deep, they're talented, but they drop the ball too much. And I think that. You know, if that if those if those fundamentals can be you know hammered through from here until you know September fifth, they can they can really make some big strides. But they need to hold on to the ball more if if the, you know to be uh, you know if they want to be like one of the top five or top ten receiving cores in the nation, at least in my opinion. Okay, um, I had the receivers at number two. Um, I'll just throw that out there since we both had them on our lists. Um, kind of echo the same things you said that, you know, they're led by a kind of an all of American type player in fuller. Um, he does need to work on catching the ball more. I think Robinson will be better without his hand under injuries. Um, had that thumb injury for a while. And uh, he had a couple big drops last year. And I don't, I don't know. It, you know, have all of the receivers coming back. I don't, it's kind of been one of those things during the spring, during the off season that it's kind of surprised that a lot of people aren't talking about. And it's, really rare for your whole receiver unit to come back as a whole. You have five guys that caught at least 20 passes. Um, I think the one thing that really uh, affects how people view them is, and I've noticed this over the years, if if your top receiver isn't kind of like 6'4", 220, they kind of downplay the whole impact. Like I can't even recall how many times I've read over the years well well, this guy doesn't have Michael Floyd size, so can he really be a number one receiver or one of the best receivers in the country? For some reason, the receiver position, I, I, it feels like people think that like the number one top guy has to be like 6'3". I mean, there's tons of guys that are 5'11", 6'1", or just great receivers. And You know, Fuller's pretty skinny, but, you know, you can't argue with his production. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot of bodies there. You know, Brown, Robinson can throw ProSize in there. Uh, I'm not as much of a Carlisle fan as some people, but you know he's a veteran as well. Got some young guys coming up. I think that's a really solid unit, and I have a lot of faith in them uh, producing. So they were my number two. So who was your number two uh, unit uh, after the spring? Uh, I'd say the running backs. Um, oh, okay. Mostly, uh, ter- I mean, I loved watching Terry and Falston run. I'm sorry, he is. He's dynamic. I think you know maybe if he was a little bit bigger, a little slightly faster. But I love watching him run. He runs with great vision. You know he runs into contact. He can drive the pile a bit. Um, I feel like Greg Bryan. I made a note. I have a little notepad that I had during while I was watching the game. And the first thing I wrote down was Bryant's first run stayed straight and moved the pile. And I wrote impressive. Um, you know, and I think that that's you know he looked like he had. You know, that he wasn't doing his little dancing, that one cut too many, you know, trying to make everybody miss and avoiding contact and then losing it for two yards or something. You know, he looked like he was, he looked like he wanted to run like a stud and be a stud. Um, At least, and that's what I got from the spring game and from spring practice. I mean, what happens in the season is, you know, 
is a completely different story. But from what I saw, um, and then you throw CJ Prosize into the mix, and you know I'm not going to be you know the, the kind of flavor of the month guy who's going to say that CJ Prosize might actually be the best running back on our team. I've seen that in a couple of places, and I'm I'm not willing to go that far and make that claim. Uh, but I will say that you know he adds a dynamic element of speed, of toughness, the ability to run that jet sweep, you know, the ability to you know flex out into the slot and be a viable receiver. I mean, any 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 combination of those three out of the backfield, I feel, is pretty dangerous and would be coveted on pretty much any team in the country. So I, I had to put them at number two. Okay, they didn't make my list, but I I like what you're saying there. Uh, I I'm I'm a little bit scared of the depth there. Like if Folston uh, was to go down long term, I'd be kind of worried about that that unit. I mean, I don't know. It's not fair to just say, well, pluck pluck a guy out of unit because of injury, but uh, still a little bit worried about the depth there and how much Bryant is really ready to carry the load if he had to. Um, but they didn't make my list. I had uh, the offensive line was my third. Is offensive line your first? It is. Okay, I'll just briefly talk about offensive line then. Um, I got offensive line at three. Um, as I said earlier, I, I'll have a piece in a couple weeks about you know what could go wrong in offense. And I'll just say this with the offensive line. I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, kind of heaping praise upon them. You know, I tend to trust what people are saying when they see them during practices and they're you know saying they look good. Um, you know, these, this player is improving, this guy looks better, stuff like that. But the one thing that I'm concerned about with them, and this isn't why, and this is why I didn't put them higher is they haven't started a single game together as a unit. And that kind of bothers me. Um, you know, I do like McGlinchey. He only has one start, you know, your left guard, whether it'll be bars or Nelson haven't started a game yet. Um, and that's the only reason why I'm a little bit concerned about them moving forward. So what what, give me your reasons why you put them at, at the top of the group. I think a lot of people would put them at the top. Uh, well, I mean, I agree with your reasons. And if I can actually add another sort of negative before I go into the positives is that okay. Notre Dame's defensive line is not spectacular. So the fact that they're handling them, you know, in a scrimmage or so isn't, you know, I'm not saying it's not a good thing, but I'm saying, you know, we can't say that they're world beaters now because, you know, they handled our line, our D line. Um, but I don't know. The, the, it's uh, I, I like Mike McGlinchey. I, I really do. I, I mean, I talked about this in the post LSU podcast that he has got a nasty to him that just it, it, it permeates throughout his entire game. And it, and you know, I mean, heck, we saw Ronnie uh, Ronnie Stanley, you know, catch a ball and run. I mean, he is an athlete, man. He he is he is incredible at left tackle. And I I mean the. That's the thing is that the pieces are there and that's what I'm, you know, and yeah, so I guess you could take it with a grain of salt that I'm saying the O-line is our best group because what I see is that, you know, Quentin Nelson is, is, is mean. He's a mauler kind of guy. And Alex Bars is, you know, he's got the technique. Nick Martin is so comfortable at center. You know, Steve Elmer has really sort of blossomed as a guard after he moved in from tackle and, you know, Stanley McGlinchey have already been spoken for, you know, and now that they have a couple of months to gel together, yeah, they haven't, you know, played a, you know, a snap together in this alignment on a real game, and that remains to be seen. But in terms of a potential, and you know, this is spring ball. Hey, we haven't even gotten the summer yet. You know, this is all about potential, and all about you know, sort of feeling good about you know potential. You know, I think that these guys, you know, from an athletics, 
from a, from a size and potentially from a technique point of view. And, you know, don't, there's the X factor sort of Harry Heastan being a great coach as well um, to really come together in the next few months and, and really perform as a unit. Because, I mean, you had essentially, with the exception of the Nelson bars, you had this line show up essentially during the LSU game and we did run the ball effectively. We did protect the quarterback effectively and we did, you know, and, it, and we had a good performance from the, from them. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just excited for, uh, for them to have uh, some really great progression, some really great performance. All right. Lots of people are excited about the offensive line. My number one group was the linebackers. I really like how everything's coming together. Granted a little bit of injury concerns. Um, it seemed like, Jarrett Grace is going to be healthy for this season. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you saw the uh, the Onward Notre Dame program a couple weeks ago and heavily focused on Grace, and he talked a lot about his recovery process and that and um, kind of mentioned that, like, he's not 100% comfortable yet, like, jumping and, like, landing and stuff like that on his leg, which kind of, you know, like – Kelly hasn't really brought that up at all. Everything has been pretty positive. So it doesn't really seem that he's like super duper hundred percent, like no problems at all. So that's still in the back of my mind. And of course, uh, Joe Schmidt still recovering from his ankle injury. Just assuming that you have both of those guys. I just really like the defense, uh, the linebackers, you know, Jalen Smith, probably the second best player in the team behind Ronnie Stanley, pound for pound, um, you know, playmaking ability, draft stock, uh, athleticism, whatever you want to take as as a ranking, he's probably at least number two behind Stanley. Uh, you know, Morgan's going to get better. Um, I like what they have at strong side linebacker, although that position really isn't a huge part of the offense. But Anawalu and Martini there. I mean, I just I really like the two deep there. I think you know, again, you get Grayson Schmidt back, and uh, you know, you got six or seven guys there for three positions and. Uh, doesn't really seem like it could go wrong with any of those guys, which is a, a big factor, I think, in me ranking them that high. Yeah, I mean, the, the only reason they didn't make my list, and I, and, and I agree with what you're saying, you know, I just felt that I guess I was looking for more of a step forward from Morgan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was sort of, I don't know what I was really looking for. I guess, you know, after seeing him, you know, have some breakdowns and fundamentals and sort of, you know, freshman troubles, in the end of the season and against LSU, I was kind of hoping for him to more stay more grounded, I guess, in the middle um, and play, you know, sort of within the defense and not, you know, sort of let himself get, you know, blocked down and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I didn't – maybe I just was being a little – expecting a little too much, but I felt like he didn't make the strides that I was hoping he would have made because uh, because he's one of those guys that I, I want you know everybody wants to be great. He is such a great athlete. It's just you know can he put it together? And you know and the other thing at linebacker is there's a whole bunch of guys who are listed as linebackers who we don't even know if they're going to end up as linebackers. Guys like you know the favorite guy that I love that it seems like I like to go to and talk about is Colin Hill. You know mm-hmm. a guy who can rush to get at the passer, but you know is he a linebacker? Is he you know a strong side de? Or, you know who is you know where is he going to be? You know, he seems to have talent. So, you know, and, and I guess there's a lot of questions also for me in terms of the configuration and what configuration works best. Should Jalen be inside? Should he be outside? You know, should, you know, is it better to have, you know, who, what three guys do we need on the field? Do we need Schmidt, Jalen, and Morgan on the field at the same time? You know, and I guess there's a lot of question marks there 
you know, I guess you could say the same thing about the O-line, but to me there's a lot of question marks there that I think need to have more solid answers to before we can, you know, get really excited about this group. I think in the future we definitely can get excited, but not at this juncture. Yeah, going back to Morgan a little bit, I would, I would echo your thoughts. I think, you know, I've heard a lot of people say it'll be a shame or, uh, you know, it just would be ridiculous if he's not starting against Texas. I wonder, he might be third string Mike linebacker for that Texas game. I was starting my preview of the Longhorns, and I didn't really watch a whole lot of Texas the past couple of years, and I was looking at some of their film, just trying to, trying to get a grasp on their offense. Um, they run a lot more power, a lot more two tight end sets, a lot more stuff with fullbacks and H-backs than I really thought. So, you know, it would surprise me if, like, Schmidt and Grace were kind of, like, co-starters for that first game, trying to get, um, you know, some size there. I know Schmidt's not uh, – the biggest guys for the smallest of the group, but just in terms of experience and leadership, I, I kind of have him penciled in as the starter. Assuming he comes back, but you know, Morgan, I th- still does think has a lot of room to uh, improve a lot of growth. So uh, let's talk about the, the units that we think need a lot of uh, improvement for next year. Uh, your bottom three groups. Let's start with your third from last. So. Um, yeah. So my, uh, my third from the last was the defensive line. Um, You know, and I think we've mentioned this before is that, you know, they just don't, you know, sometimes it's difficult to tell if they have the bodies. I know uh, Jonathan Bonner just went out with a turf toe. He's expected back in June. Um, And he was supposed to be a big piece to all this. He's a, I believe a rising sophomore, Um, you know, and I, I, there were, I did see some things I liked, you know, Tillery looked decent. You know, I know there's a lot of hype, he looked decent. You know, there were times that he did some really good things. There's times he did some not so great things. Um, you know, Andrew Chimbetti was probably the only guy who really stood out to me that looked like he wasn't engaging. I, I And I was sort of – I had some difficulty sort of watching that film and, and trying to figure out if, you know, was our O-line just, you know, overpowering these guys and making these gaping holes or were we trying these sort of X stunts and is that why guys are moving laterally like that or something like that? You know, but I felt like a lot of guys were just engaging and still engaging. And Trimbetti was the only guy who looked like he was trying to, you know, you know, dip his shoulder, olay guys, and you know, turn the corner and get, you know, get into the backfield. And he looked like the only guy who had really made progress from a, from a, you know, a technique point of view. Um, and I guess I was again maybe the same thing with Niles Morgan as I was expecting a little more progress by this at this juncture, uh, but. I don't know. I, I, I that's why they're third on my list. I felt like there was some progress, but at the same time, at the same time, we were able to get pressure. I mean, we saw a lot of pressure coming from linebackers and safeties and corners and whatnot. So, at the same time, it might not be a bad thing that these guys are just you know able to you know occupy blocks and engage guys and all that sort of stuff. I'd like to see them get after the quarterback more, but you know if it you know it's a it's a team game and all eleven guys have the responsibility of stopping the other team. So. You know, it might just work out that way in a schematic point of view that, you know, it doesn't it, – it's, you know, sort of no harm, no foul. Okay, I had the defensive line on my list too, but my third from bottom was tight end. Um, I said before in my recap to the spring game I was going to talk about the tight ends and then Wisher caught that touchdown pass at the end, and I was like, ah, oh, forget it. But I feel like, you know, it, it pretty much feels like Smythe has the number one job wrapped up, but if someone were to ask me, you know, what kind of player he is, I don't really know what I would say. I don't know what I could talk about with him other than what, you know, I hear other people say. 
you know, he played a little bit last year and um, I didn't really notice anything in the spring game. I granted I wasn't uh, rewinding and watching blocking and stuff like that. So I think a tight end, you know, I like what they have there. And I, I think Lua Tua is going to be a really good H back and do some good things as a blocker. And obviously Alizé Jones coming in is exciting and, and Wisher has got a bright future, but there's just not a whole lot of experience there. And I don't know, that just kind of bothers me. I feel like heading into the season, you know, looking at everything on offense, that's the one positional group where I'm like, uh, you know, that could be the weak link. Granted, it might be, you might get like average above average play, but you know, I kind of feel like that's the one position group on offense that's kind of holding them back a little bit right now. Yeah, I actually had tight ends listed as my number two. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, yeah, I and, and pretty much for the same exact reasons, is that basically I don't know what we have here. I, I just don't. I, I, I understand that, um, you know, Durham Smythe, he looks long. He looks athletic. He looks like he could be another Tyler Eifert from just looking at a picture of him. Uh, but at the same time, I got to see something on the field. He, I think he has like one career catch or something, um, in terms of, you know, actual production. Um, and with that, I think it's just a big wait and see with these guys and Hey, you never know. I mean, it can come in that, you know, we have a baseline here and Alizé Jones comes in, you know, wins the job for all, you know, do I think that's probable? Eh, probably not, but you never know, you know, especially when it seems like everybody who's ahead of you on the depth chart is virtually an unknown. So, you know, I guess we'll see. Okay. We had some tech- technical difficulties. Uh, we're at the bottom of the barrel for the positional groups for Notre Dame. Um, I've talked about tight end defensive line. What's your uh, bottom group? Uh, the bottom group that I have for this coming or post spring is the safeties. Um, and the, the little note that I have written down on, uh, my piece of paper in front of me is that the safeties need to communicate, please, please communicate. And I guess I was, again, I was hoping for a little bit more improvement in this area. Uh, we all know that Max Redfield and Elijah Shoemate have all the talent in the world, all the physical talent in the world. Um, but at the same time, we saw towards the end of the season, or actually really throughout the season, starting in the Rice game, you know, miscommunications that led to big plays on the other end. I mean, we saw in LSU, I think LSU ripped off, I think it was the run by Diars that was a big chunk play, and because Max Redfield bit hard and sort of left him wide open. It wasn't a run, sorry, it was a pass. But, you know, basically that Max Redfield left him wide open. Um and I think that that's the biggest thing because when it comes down to it, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, that the secondary is sort of the most dynamic group. And there's always so much going on in Brian Mangorder's defense between its, you know, uh, sort of uh, living and dying by man-to-man coverage, but also, you know, it needs a great deal of technique and communication to run this sort of complex system well. Uh, and we still haven't seen it. We, we still haven't seen it. I thought I saw a couple times in this blue goal game that, you know, guys were not communicating well. Receivers were being left too open. Um, I also saw Max Redfield miss a tackle or two. Um, and I, it may seem like I'm being nitpicky, but I, I just feel that at this juncture, these guys are both, I believe, juniors or I don't know. I'm not sure. But Elijah Shumay might be a, a senior at this point. Um, but actually he is a senior. Um, but, you know, these guys are so 
physically gifted that you, you would just want them to be playing better. Um, particularly Redfield, you know, having been a former five-star recruit that everybody was just so excited about. Now he's a junior, you know, hopefully he can put the piece together. I mean, these guys sort of, uh, they walk around, you know, Redfield's got a lot of swagger on the field. He had a lot of swagger and then kind of went away and went into Kelly's doghouse. So I, I don't know, you know, I, why, I don't know why these guys haven't been able to turn the page yet and, you know, really make some good progress. But I feel like, you know, that's what, and that's why they're sort of at the bottom of my list because it's just communication at this point. It, it, it's, you know, the physical talent is there. You guys, they, the guys got to communicate better and they got to be better playing within the defense or else they're going to give up chunk plays like they did in LSU and it's then the defense is going to be burned by it. Yeah, they were the bottom for me as well. Um, I think on the positive side of things, um, there's a a chance that there's pretty good depth at this position. I know that's weird for people to hear because the lack of depth there has been kind of a talking point for you know eighteen months, maybe two years, really. And uh, you know, if there's some break with the injuries, if Tranquil's healthy, um, if Barati's healthy, you add in. Um, the transfer from Cal, who could probably be a 2D player. You know, Farley might see some reps back there again this year. Um, I'm not really banking on any of the freshmen, but you got some bodies coming in there. I mean, there could be, you know, five, maybe six guys back there. Though I think in addition to the, to the issues you brought up, um, I just don't think there's really your quintessential roaming free safety back there. And Redfield can be that guy, but until he really proves it on a consistent basis, um, he's just not that guy right now. And I'm a little bit worried if he were to go down with an injury or get banged up and, you know, maybe he just never turns into the, the player that everyone thought he would be, that there just isn't, you know, someone back there who's going to be able to be a great pass defender who can – you know, split the field in half and break up deep passes. Um, I think that's always, I think that's been the big problem really since Harrison Smith left, you know, we got shoemates a pretty good in in the box type of a safety. He can come down and stop the run. Even Redfield is, I think a much better at coming down and playing aggressively and stopping the run than he is than, uh, you know, going back and defending passes and trying to play in coverage. I just, I, that's the one thing I really worry about this year is, you know, playing against some good quarterbacks and them kind of slicing up the safeties. And uh, and like you said, I mean, Shumate had a good freshman season as a nickel corner, and he's transitioned to a safety ever since then, and it's just never really clicked. Uh, Redfield didn't really play a whole lot two years ago, and last year up and down, more bad than good, and just so many question marks back there. And I, I think that's pretty much the way everyone else sees it. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing is that there's a, you know, we mentioned depth at the, it, it almost seems to me like a paper tiger because, I mean, uh, Nicky Barati seems to have shoulders made out of tissue paper. Um, and Drew Tranquil's coming back from an ACL, and I know everybody's talking how great he's been, you know, how, you know, how amazing his recovery has been. You know, that's great, but it's still an ACL. Um you know, and even with that being said, you know, Drew Tranquil is 225, 6'2", 225. He's more built like a linebacker, and he's not, I don't think, has the speed or the range to be that sort of roving free safety that you were that you mentioned. Um, and the other thing is, as, as I agree with you 100%, with Elijah Shoemate and Max Redfield being good in run support, I mean, I, I will say that 
up by the up by the line of scrimmage or blitzing in a, in a safety blitz in Brian Van Gorder's defense, they play pretty well. They play pretty tough against the run. I mean, I saw there's one big hit if you look at the highlight reel from the uh, the Blue Gold game. I think it's Terry Foles to make it a run, and Max Redfield comes up and pops him, and you know there's a big hit, and you kind of hear the crowd, you know, ooh and ah and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think that you know they do do that well. But the other thing was when Avery Sebastian is coming in, you know, I've heard from what I've read, or, you know, what I've read about him, he's not that great in coverage, but he's pretty hardy against the run. And again, you know, it's great that we have these guys who can come up and play the run. You know, if we were playing Georgia Tech and Navy, you know, all 12 games, I'd, I'd be pretty happy about that. But, uh, you know, I, these guys, like you said, need to be able to shut down half the field, you know, a third of the field or something like that, you know, and be able to be competent in the pass game. And I, I just don't feel that that competency is there yet. All right, so that's probably going to wrap up our podcast. You have an article going up. Tomorrow we're taping this on a Sunday. Uh, what's your article going to be on tomorrow? It's uh, it's going to be looking at turf toe injuries. Uh, Jonathan Bonner underwent surgery, uh, I think, a, two two or three weeks ago uh, for it, and it's a pretty common uh, injury. It's one um, even as a lowly medical student, uh, people do ask me about turf toe. You know, sort of because especially right after Notre Dame uh, put in artificial turf. You know, some some of the older Notre Dame fans that I'm friends with, you know, sort of say, oh, well, isn't that going to create more injuries and all that sort of stuff? And, yeah, artificial turf is part of the story, but uh, modern artificial turf isn't as bad as uh, old artificial turf and shoes and all kinds of equipment have a lot to do with it. So it's, uh, I think it'll be a pretty good read because everybody seems to get turf toe nowadays, and it's, it's always talked about. So uh, you can go check it out. Now, do you think that that injury should be renamed, or do you like that it's called turf toe and it kind of – Pulls them, it kind of brings to mind that how the injury happens. But it feels like a lot of people don't think it's a serious injury, but it could be pretty serious. It, it is a serious injury. And, in fact, I, I guess I'll mention it right now that um, normally it doesn't require much intervention. Normally it just involves you know immobilization. Either you tape the toe or you put it in a walking boot. So the fact that Jonathan Bonner needed surgery – uh, tends to make me think that, you know, because because the way that the toe that that toe works is there's a lot of ligaments, there's a lot of tendons that are in there, and when that toe gets bent back on itself, uh, like that in that injury, uh, you can do some serious damage there, and and you know it's oh it's, it's just a toe, but if you if you look at the way you know uh, humans walk and run, you know the big toe is is big for a reason it's bit you know the other toes are small because they don't do a lot they do some stabilization but the big toe is sort of the pivot more so than even the ball of your foot in terms of changing direction and really generating you know power in, in you know in your leg drive whether you're running or walking or you know blocking or doing whatever um you know it's the big toe that sort of you know pivots and, and and is sort of the focal point of all that force and all that motion so if you have an injury to it where you have and it's painful so if you have a lot of pain there you know, it, it really impacts your game, and it's not something you can really play through. And guys who do play through it, I don't really, you know, it's a tough thing to play through. So you got to give credit to guys who do play through it. Yeah. All right. So people can read that on the site tomorrow on Monday morning. Um, I just checked out Twitter. I saw the shirt that was just unveiled. I My initial reaction is I like it a lot. It's green. I thought it was going to be a different color, but um, people can also go and check that out on One Foot Down dot com tonight and monday or whenever you are listening to this podcast head to our site and check out our content um that's going to wrap up our 51st episode 
I'm Eric. That's Phil. You know I'm on the site. It's Young Curmudgeon, and we will see you guys later.